there are moments in history that are intriguing. <clears throat> Events that I would absolutely know, love to know exactly what transpired, what was said and done. <clears throat> when I think of the scriptures that I would love to see portrayed in this way, there's a moment that I would truly love to watch an eavesdrop on. It's not the parting of the Red Sea as pictured by Cecil B. DeMille or Elijah ascending to heaven in a chariot of fire, but there's an event. It's pictured in Luke 24 when the Lord Jesus, after his resurrection, appears to two disciples. They don't know that it's him yet. We're told that Jesus begins at Moses and all the prophets and expounds to these two men in all the scripture, that would be the Old Testament only at that point, the things concerning himself. He walks them through all of the Old Testament and saying, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. <clears throat> the newly risen Jesus walked on the Emmaus Road with these two men, and he walked them through the entire Old Testament with the only scripture that existed at that point. He surveyed the Old Testament and pointed to himself in all the Old Testament. And that's the function of the preacher now in the New Covenant when he preaches an Old Testament text. To unearth in the text where Christ is. We know he's there. We know he's embedded in every text in the Old Testament because the Lord Jesus tells us in Luke 24 that he showed his hearers himself in all the Old Testament scriptures. So tonight as we open up Joshua 8, and I do hope you have your Bibles open, we'll be following the text very closely. You're going to be tempted to think at first, this is an Old Testament historical narrative. It has nothing to do with my life or even the gospel. It might be a good battle story, and it is. I find that teenage boys are usually most excited about this text because it's kind of like an action movie. But most people say, I, I don't know how this text could possibly speak of Christ. But let me encourage you to bear down and follow closely with us because in the most surprising way, you're going to find out that in this Old Testament narrative that has to do with Israel conquering the Canaanites, we will find right there a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the reason why we're expounding verses 3 through 29 is it's a whole literary unit. It, it's a self-contained narrative and a story. And so we're going, to be con, we're going to be examining it as a whole, as a whole portion of inerrant, true history, and as a perfect text to lead us to the Lord's table. Let's ask for the Lord's help at this time. <clears throat> Gracious God, give us humble, teachable, obedient hearts now that we may receive what you have revealed and do what you have commanded. We make our request in the only acceptable name, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I want us to begin with the battle. A very straightforward reading. And again, you'll need your text open to Joshua 8. The text is incredibly clear in terms of the details of the day. And we start out with the careful preparations that are made for battle. Look at verse 3, the numbers who are chosen to fight for Israel. And what we're going to see in the first few verses of Joshua 8 is a very orderly, strategic plan made by God for Israel to overcome their enemies. And we see it systematically, logically set forth. So look at verse 3. Joshua rises up with all the men of war to go against Ai. And Joshua chooses 30,000 mighty men. 
We've talked enough about the mighty men to know what this is. This is sort of the Navy SEALs and Army Rangers rolled into one of Israel. These are men of valor. And this is the choosing of the army. Now let me preempt somebody who's already spotted what they think is a difficulty in the text. You're going to see maybe a difficulty with the numerics. Synchronizing the 5,000 soldiers in verse 12 on the west side of the city with the 30,000 soldiers mentioned in verse 3. <clears throat> a lot of commentators, mostly of the unbelieving sort, have spent a lot of ink on this, talking about supposed contradictions in the text. It's not even necessary. It's a vain point because the chief numerical fact of the whole chapter is found in verse 1. Look carefully there. In verse 1, we are told that the Lord said to Joshua, don't be afraid or be dismayed. Take all the people of war and go up to Ai. This is reaffirmed in verse 15, Joshua and all Israel. Again, in verse 21, Joshua and all Israel. However you want to divide the text, well, this part of the army was here and this part was there. The key point that we should know and fixate on is all of the fighting men of Israel are engaged. Contrary to the first battle of Ai, Joshua learned his lesson there. You'll remember in Joshua 7. <coughs> Instead of <coughs> just sending a few soldiers, now he practices the unity of the people of God. Every soldier is on duty. And after all these people are organized, after all the men are set up and given their orders, you have the night march. Joshua doesn't waste any time to obey. Look at verse 3. He sends out these men, these 30,000 men, sort of the front guard. He sends them away by night, not waiting even until daylight. And then we see that Joshua, look at verse 4, learned his lesson from Ai. Be on your guard. Be prepared for ambushes. Be prepared for anything. And notice how he says it to his men in verse 4. Listen, you be ready. He gives them the motto as soldiers. Don't be sleeping on watch. This is a time to fight. Be on your guard and be ready. And then the scheme unfolds, follow the structure of the text in verses 5 through 6. And essentially Joshua is saying this. We're going to send a group of troops right up to the front gate of Ai. And this staggers me. This 80-year-old man, Joshua, says, I'm going to be at the tip of the spear. The platoon that goes right up to the gate of Ai and could knock on the gate we're going to position ourselves there. And the men of Ai are going to be so overconfident, they'll come out to fight us. And remember, this is an 80-year-old man saying this. By the way, did you get this? This is an 80-year-old man. He says, and then we, we're going to turn and run. This is a senior citizen saying, I'm going to lead us and we're going to turn and run. <clears throat> and as we go running, you people who set yourself up behind the city, when the soldiers of Ai overconfidently chase us out and say, it's an old guy. Open the gates and let's ch chase them down. Then while they're chasing us down, you circle around, come into the city and set it on fire. Then we will turn. We'll turn on that group that's pursuing us. They'll now be caught in our trap. And you come out of their city. We'll turn towards their city. We'll ha they'll have no place to go. Military strategists, by the way, call this a pincer movement. Now notice in verse 7, look at the confidence this is going to work. Joshua says, notice the faith. Then you will rise up from the ambush and seize the city for the Lord your God will deliver it into your hand. The Lord will deliver it. 
Joshua's walking by faith. God had told them in, in him in verse 1 and 2 to do this. He's given him the plan. Now, Joshua doesn't say, men, the Lord's told us this. I hope, I, know what he, I hope he knows what he's doing. I hope this works. I hope this plan comes together. Look at verse 7. What you see is the confidence of faith in the word of God. Joshua says, you shall do this and will triumph because God has promised. And not one of his words can fall to the ground unfulfilled. And then Joshua plans the destruction, walking by faith. He's telling everyone in verse 8, look at it carefully, here's what to do. It's going to happen. God promised. So you be prepared to set the city on fire. Now I want you to notice the contrast between Joshua this time, in Joshua 8, and just one chapter before, in the first battle of Ai, in Joshua 7. In one chapter, notice the contrast. First of all, now Joshua in Joshua 8 is noteworthy for his energetic activity. I keep saying this because Joshua is kind of my model for senior life. Joshua's 80. He's been on AARP's got to get a picture of the topography we're looking at. Ai, the city, is up on the hill. And right in front of the city gates is a valley. Joshua is so eager to get at the battle, so eager to obey the Lord, that he camps that night down in the valley, staring up at the city gates of Ai. The men of Ai staring down at him. He wants to get at it in the battle at dawn's first light. He pushes his flesh. He must, he's the master over it. This man doesn't say, I'm 80, y'all. I've got aches and pains. I just need to sit and relax. Could somebody get me a chair? I'm, I'm 80 in case you haven't heard. Look what he does in verse 18. The Lord tells him to stretch out his spear. Joshua stretches out his spear, and he fights all day. 
Look at his involved leadership. He takes the elders and he goes with them to the head of the people to Ai. <clears throat> now think about the comparison. In Joshua 7, the last time, he didn't even go out. When the troops went out, he sent them out. He stayed back at Jericho and he sent men. But I want you to see something about Joshua. This is a glorious picture of growth in grace, of sanctification. Joshua is 80 years old. Don't ever say, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Here's a man who's 80 years old, and he learned from his mistakes. The last time he erred in not being on site, not giving leadership, not going up with his men, what does he do this time? Does he say, I'm too old to learn something new. I'm 80. I'm past that. No, he learns from his mistakes. There's some of you brothers here in this room who are 70, 80, and saying, it's too late for me, Carl. I can't learn something new. I'm too old to learn anything new, especially when it comes to mortifying the flesh and sanctification and disciplines. Just let me coast into heaven. That's not the picture you see in Scripture. Joshua has learned hard lessons and says, I need to be humbled by the first battle of Ai and change. And so at 80 years old, he starts doing something different. He learned it the hard way in chapter 7. He stayed home and sent men to fight for him. Now in chapter 8, you don't see that. You see Joshua at the front of the battle. He learned this lesson that real leaders don't sit on the sidelines and bark out orders from a shady spot. Leaders get in the battle and lead. They lead by being in the front line. Joshua personally oversees the battle to make sure it's done right. Look at verse 13. He's with the man, the men. He's not back in headquarters. Notice what else we see about Joshua in this battle scene. Look at his constancy and perseverance. In verse 18, the Lord tells him to stretch out his spear, and so he does. But look at the punchline of this in verse 26. We read, Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the spear until he'd utterly destroyed all the inhabitants of Ai. So between verse 18, when he first stretched out his spear, to verse 26, when we're told he didn't put his spear down. He didn't stop the fight until the job was completely done. And what you see there is that glorious Christian trait of perseverance. Remember, Joshua's an old man. He could be excused. He could say, well, I started the battle, and then I wandered off to the side to watch from a shady spot. I put in an hour. Let me go sit down here and rest. No, he leads by persevering. He says, men, we're going to stick with it till it's done, and I'm going to be at the head of the pack. We're going to stick with it until God's word has been completely fulfilled. We are going to stay in the battle, and I'll be at the head of the pack. Now, notice also his confidence in the Lord and his trust in the word of the Lord. Joshua is a picture of a man who walks by faith. I hope, and I've warned against this already, don't look at these people in the book of Joshua and think, they're just, you know, Old Testament saints. These are people who didn't really know much, and they didn't really live holy lives, and they didn't really know how to walk by faith. I've said it before, and I'm saying it tonight, and you'll hear me again in the book of Joshua. This is the best generation Israel ever knew. These men right here who are on the battlefield with Joshua, they're the best of the best. They're the greatest generation. <clears throat> Joshua, don't look upon him as some sort of rugged outdoorsman who didn't really know the scripture. This man walked by faith. This man knew obedience in ways that you and I will never know and comprehend. 
<clears throat> this is a man who takes God at his word and does it. Look at verse 7. Some of those glorious words you can see in the chapter. Verse 7. Then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city, for the Lord your God will deliver it into your hand. Joshua's been told by God <clears throat> that they're going to take the city of Ai. He doesn't second-guess God. He doesn't question. He doesn't doubt. He turns to the people and says, Rise up from the ambush, seize the city, the Lord's going to deliver it into our hand. Joshua believed God's promise. He doesn't fear or dismay. God had told him back in chapter 8, verse 1, not to be fearful. So he believed that, and that produced great action. Don't say this man Joshua, he, Carl, he, wasn't he kind of a simpleton? This is a giant of sanctification. He walks by faith, which is the essence of the Christian life. You know what faith does? A real living faith. Faith makes a man busy. Faith makes a man fight the good fight. Faith makes a man use the means. Faith doesn't make a man lazy and sluggardly. It energizes him. Unbelief and doubt will paralyze you and render you ineffective. But assurance of victory, believing the promises, will make you busy. And Joshua understood this. And by faith, he gets up and gets busy. <clears throat> now, there's something else that proves what I've said. Some of you are saying, Carl, really? Are you sure this is the best generation of Israel? Absolutely. Without a doubt, this is the best of the best. You'll look high and low in all the Old Testament. You'll not find a generation that did what this generation did. I want you to notice what they did. They obeyed Joshua's commands over and over again. By the way, compared to Moses' generation, can you find any time where they did that? This generation did what Joshua, as the mouthpiece of God, commanded them. They obeyed. Obedience, the word that causes some of you to stiffen your backbone. Obedience, that laughable word in our culture here and even in some homes here. Obedience. Think about the traditional wedding vows. To love, honor, and Carl, do you have to say obey? How those vows are mocked and even opposed. Think about what happens when we speak of the elders of the church and their right to encourage the congregation to obedience in the sphere of the church. Or think about what's the feeling that ripples through the congregation when we speak of a parent's duty to command obedience in the sphere of the home. Even in the church of Jesus Christ, obedience to God's law is often scorned or explained away. But Bible-believing Christians love obedience to God's word. It's always a commendable trait. This is exemplified in verse 8. If you'll look there, Joshua says, It shall be when you take in the city that you shall set the city on fire according to the commandment of the Lord. You shall do it. See, I've commanded you. Biblical Christians aren't bothered by the assertive leadership of someone like Joshua. They don't bow up when God's leaders say, You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I've commanded you. Israel obeyed. And if you read the narrative, you'll see what they did matched what they were commanded to do. Israel was given orders. They saluted. They obeyed. There was no disputing the orders, no grumbling, even though the mission was dangerous. So let me remind you of the battle plan. <clears throat> One squad of Israelite soldiers had to go up and take a position between the city of Bethel and the city of Ai. Both Canaanite cities, confederated allies. And the 5,000 on the west, they were putting their necks out. 
If they were discovered prematurely, it would mean massive casualties. But they went without question. We don't see anybody saying to Joshua, Joshua, are you sure about this? This looks really dangerous. The main body goes outside the gates of Ai on the north, and there the, the people have to obey. They have to be prepared. As soon as the men from the city of Ai open the gates and come pouring out to attack them, they have to sprint away from the soldiers of Ai and do a planned retreat. If you have Robert Louis Dabney's biography of Stonewall Jackson, which I heartily commend to you, it tells how, and Dabney was Stonewall Jackson's aide, <coughs> Dabney tells how Jackson won several battles in the war by, between the states by what he called strategic retreats. These are incredibly difficult to pull off. <coughs> Usually, great numbers of men and supplies are lost in such an endeavor. When you, in an attempt to draw soldiers out of a position, turn and run, and you look over your shoulders and say, uh, we're running away now, waiting for just the right time to stop and turn and engage the battle. The men who were with Joshua, right in front of the city gates of Ai, they knew this would be dangerous. They knew that to fake a retreat before an advancing army of soldiers was dangerous. Yet we don't see one word in the text of people saying, I don't think so. I'm not very confident in your leadership, Joshua. They obeyed unquestioningly. How the greater Joshua, the Lord Jesus, delights to see that kind of obedience from his soldiers. We too have marching orders. Our general, our commander has said to us, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If these soldiers owed obedience, unquestioning, immediate, joyful, complete obedience to the lesser Joshua, how much more do we owe obedience to the greater Joshua? Now, Joshua's brilliant. <clears throat> he's not just a general, but he's a master psychologist. He's a student of fallen human nature. Look what he says in verse 6. He understands the presumptuousness of these Canaanite residents of Ai. Look what he says. They will come out after us till we have drawn them from the city, for they will say they are fleeing before us as at the first. Joshua knows he can count on the, the pride and the presumptuousness of the Canaanites. He's inside their head. It's astounding how well he knows his enemy. Look what he says in verse 6, and notice the surety with which he says it. Joshua says, they, they will come out after us till we have drawn them from the city, for they will say they're fleeing before us at the first. Joshua understands his enemies. Now listen to me carefully. He understands his enemies. This is the same thing that Paul says in the New Testament to us when he says, we are not ignorant of our enemies' devices. Paul says, we know our enemy. Joshua knew his enemy. He understood that we're to understand the, the world, the flesh, and the devil, he knows that his enemy is always marked by presumptuousness, and the ruse worked. Look at what happens in verse 17. We read, sure enough, there was not a man left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel, just as Joshua knew they would. And so we read, they left the city open. These Canaanite soldiers come pouring out of the gates of Ai. 
And these men, as they come pouring out, they're saying to one another, we beat these Israelites just a few days ago. We came, we came storming out of the city gates, and we chased them, and we killed 36 of their men. Let's go get them again, and let's finish the job this time. And the Canaanite soldiers come pouring out, never looking over their shoulder once. Joshua counted on that. He knew they'd be proud. He knew they'd presume upon victory. He knew they'd be careless. And they reasoned this way, these Canaanite soldiers that are rushing out of the city of Ai. Well, victorious once, victorious always. And they rush into God's ordained trap. Think about where these Canaanites had been just a few days ago. When we go back to Joshua 2, it was Rahab who told us all the Canaanites in the land, their hearts were melting and they were trembling. When we go to Joshua chapter 5, we read that as the people of God come into the promised land, once again, the Canaanites are melting. And then one chapter, one little victory in Joshua chapter 7, 36 casualties. And now these Canaanites, after one victory, are bold and arrogant, even though they're just a little podunk town with a few thousand people in it. They think, we can wipe out the armies of the living God. <clears throat> in their case, su success breeds a spirit of pride and complacency. Their temporary victory hardens them against God, these enemies of God's people. Now listen carefully to me, the lessons we should learn. The enemies of God's people throughout history have always fallen for the same strategy and folly. They attack and persecute the church of Christ. They have some small success. This week, the news poured in across my feed. This week, of all the slaughtering of Christian brothers and sisters in Nigeria and India, in the homeland of our beloved Reuben and J. Paul, we're seeing the, the wicked triumphing over the believers for a brief moment. But the unbeliever has never realized that God is just using them as a momentary tool to chastise or humble his church. But the lost man is always emboldened to attack more, only to find out they'll soon be crushed. Now, there's an ethical question that's raised here. At least some people do. I'm not bothered by it. I won't miss a minute sleep about it tonight. But the question is always asked by people with sensitive consciences and those who don't understand the nature of God. Is it right to do a ruse? in order to draw the men of Ai out to a terrible death? Is this somehow a violation of the ninth commandment? Let me give you the quick answer. God commanded it, therefore it's right. Look at verse 2. God commands Joshua, set an ambush. That's an imperative from a holy God who cannot do anything but right. We need to learn to reason this way. Instead of saying, I don't think that looks very ethical, we need to start with this presupposition. If God commands it, it is right. God defines what ethics are. He defines what morality and holiness are. So don't sit up tonight one minute stewing and wondering, was that right of Joshua to do? Was that fair? God commanded it. It's right. Then notice the complete conquest. The plan works. Look at verse 20. We see that the plan works so well we read that the men of Ai had no power to flee this way or that way. The people who fled to the wilderness turned back now, led by Joshua, on the pursuers, and the people of Ai were completely surrounded. Some were even chased down, we read in verse 24. The conquest of Ai was complete. The devastation of Ai was total. 
that the conquest was complete is shown by a few things. First of all, look at the slaughter in verse 22, the whole city. We read that the others came out of the city against them, so they were caught in the midst of Israel, some on this side, some on that. They struck them down, so they let none of them remain or escape. Several times through 24 and 26, we're told that all of them were slain. What does that prove? This proves that God's people were completely obedient in carrying out the commands of God. This is complete, total obedience. A second way that we know the conquest was complete is shown by the securing of the spoils. Look at verse 27. Israel takes hold of all of that that Achan couldn't wait just a few more days for. They take hold of the spoils of the city. And here we see the principle principle that stated often in Proverbs that the wealth of the wicked is laid up for the righteous. Did you hear that principle? The wealth of the wicked is laid up for the righteous. We see the conquest was complete by another point. Look at the destruction in verse 28. The entire city is burned. And so from that day on, everyone who ever walked by and sees a burnt up heap, just like the Valley of Achan, just like the crossing monuments, everybody who'd walk by and say, that's what happens to people who fight against God. And we see the conquest is complete by another thing. Look at verse 23. The king of Ai is taken alive and brought to Joshua. And in verse 29, we read of the king of Ai, and now begin to listen very carefully for Christocentric truth. We read that the king of Ai was hanged on a tree until evening. Why the special punishment for him? Well, because leaders in rebellion against God are treated with far more severity than followers in rebellion. You see this principle all throughout scripture. The leader bears more responsibility than the follower. The principle holds across the entire spectrum. That's why James tells us in James 3 that teachers incur a much stricter judgment than students. Parents incur a stricter judgment than children, magistrates than their citizens, elders than their congregants. It's an ominous responsibility to take on, to be a parent, an elder, a magistrate, a teacher, a king. When I began, I stated that the duty of the preacher when expounding the Old Testament is always to find Christ in the narrative. Look carefully at verse 29. The Israelites knew what hanging a man on a tree meant. Now remember, their canon of Scripture at this time, put yourself back for just a moment, their canon of Scripture was this. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And maybe Job, but certainly Deuteronomy. And in their canon of Scripture, which they knew, in Deuteronomy 21, they'd heard the words taught them. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And they knew that hanging this man, this arch enemy, the king of Ai, they knew that hanging this man on a tree was the most degrading thing you could do to a man. And so they take this Canaanite leader, and they want to humiliate him. And they want to send a message to all the other Canaanite cities in the confederacies around them. Here's what happens to the enemies of God. They get crucified on a tree. Listen to me carefully now. Your Jesus was treated just like the leader of God's enemies for you. Your Christ was treated just like the king of Ai 
for you. This is why centuries later, after our text, 1,400 years after Joshua 8, a crucified Messiah was such a stumbling block for the Jews. How, they said, how could, how could you follow someone who had done to him what was done to the king of Ai? The thought of following someone, trusting someone as Messiah who had been hung on a tree, it was, to use the language of Paul, it was a stumbling block. How could such a man possibly be the promised one? They didn't understand that this man, Jesus, was cursed, not for his own sin, but for the sin of others. That's why Isaiah prophesied of this in Isaiah 53, 5. He was bruised for our iniquities, not for his own sins and crimes. So we begin to move to the Lord's table now. Let me apply this text. First of all, what we see is a principle that holds throughout all of Scripture and all of history. The triumph of the wicked over the righteous is brief. Only a few days separated Ai's victory over Israel from their complete destruction. God is never going to allow the wicked to rule over the righteous long. Why? Because if they did, the righteous would be tempted to say in their despair, it's no use serving God. The psalmist explains it this way in Psalm 125. The scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous reach out their hands to iniquity. Do good, O Lord. Do good to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. So the, the application is God's not going to let the wicked rule over the righteous long. Oh, how the men of Ai had celebrated for that week. No doubt carnally after they put Israel to flight in chapter 7. We got them on the run. We've crushed Jehovah's army. How they mocked the living God and his army, his laws and his people. And how the wicked rejoice today when they do things like legalize and normalize homosexual marriage. When they control the educational apparatus to inculcate godless thinking. How the, the wicked rejoice and say, we've had our way. We've crushed the church of Jesus. On God's clock, their joy will be short-lived. The wicked have very few minutes to delight. Your hearts may be tempted to melt at the triumph of the wicked. But from Genesis 3.15 to Revelation 22.15, we are taught the ultimate triumph of the godly. And let me say, if you're an enemy of God here tonight, you better celebrate quick. Because it's going to end soon. And you will be under the foot of Christ forever. A second application. I want you to think about the doom of those who rebel against God is always inescapable. The doom of those who rebel against God is inescapable. This text illustrates the status of the one who raises a fist against God. They have no place to flee. <clears throat> That's what we're shown when the people of Ai come pouring out of the city. They find all of a sudden they're surrounded on every side. There's nowhere to hide. My unbelieving friend, if you're outside of Christ tonight, this is your position. You're trapped. The wrath of God awaits you. The only way for you to escape the inescapable wrath of a holy God is to quickly raise the white flag of surrender to Christ and bow the knee to him in repentance and faith. A third application. Those persons are in the most danger who naively believe themselves to be the most secure. The supremely overconfident residents of Ai 
were running out the city gates thinking they were invincible. In that moment, they were 10 minutes away from their slaughter. At the moment, they were heading out of the gates. They're thinking, we're going to put an end to these Israelites once and for all. We killed 36 of them last week, but today we're going to finish them off. In that moment, they were 50 yards away from their death. Tonight, there are people even in this room who smugly see themselves to be out of danger. You're careless. You're convinced that you've got nothing to worry about, and that's what the residents of AI thought. But my unbelieving friend, you're only a heartbeat from destruction and eternal damnation. If you're an enemy of Christ, you're not secure. You're in danger. Let me plead with you. Don't leave this room. Don't get in a car and drive down Woodruff Road without repenting and doing business with Christ as Savior. A final application. You must recognize from this text the picture of Christ. You must recognize and believe that your Lord Jesus became a curse. A curse worse than any Canaanite king, worse than any enemy of God's. Your Jesus became a curse for you. When you look at the fate of the king of Ai here in Joshua 8:29, you think, oh, how distasteful. It's a public spectacle. This man, he's stripped naked, he's hung up before everybody, hung on a tree, and I can't bear to look. My friend, that's what our Jesus took for you and for me. Has your love grown cold for Christ? Have you thought, what has Jesus done for me lately? Let me remind you what he's done. He took this humiliation. He took 33 years worth of degradation. That you might walk free. That you might have eternal life. To be received as a son, a daughter by faith in Christ. And so the Jesus that you'll meet now at the table is a crucified Savior. Let me tell you, to further the application, this same Jesus, once humiliated, will soon return in triumph over all his enemies. Claim him tonight as your king. He will triumph over the nations, and he will be victorious. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus, it gives us great delight tonight to enlist under your banner. Give us courage and obedience and perseverance. Let us see by faith that day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Until then, Lord, give us strength. Give us obedience and perseverance. We pray in the name.